Hey, tonight we're continuing the uh, series, 10 Lies, and we have a special guest that's going to be coming in just a moment, and he's no stranger to Timberline, Chris Bruno, been a friend of mine for years, at least 50 years, something like that, right, Chris? You're not that old, that's right, sorry, I am. (laughs) Uh, But Chris Bruno has been a member of Timberline here for, for years. He's the founder and CEO of Restoration Project, ministry dedicated to calling men to engage, specifically in fatherhood, brotherhood, and ending trafficking. He's the founder of Restoration Counseling Center of Northern Colorado. We use, we refer a lot of people uh, to Restoration Counseling through the years. He's a licensed professional counselor. He's been married 23 years, three kids, any pets, one pet. I'm sure you'll hear about that later. Previous life includes 10 plus years as a missionary to the Middle East. And so we're blessed to have Chris here tonight. Chris, come up and continue this series with us tonight. Bless you, brother. It's always dangerous to have Steve introduce you. Uh, You never know what's going to come out of his mouth. It's a great privilege for me to be here tonight. uh, And I do want to Thank you for the opportunity. Steve mentioned I spent uh, close to 10 years in the Middle East. And after uh, the first year of being uh, in the city of Istanbul, I had a great and awful experience. That experience was, uh, first, uh, you move to a place like Turkey, and you live in a a city like Istanbul. There are 17 million people who live in the city. And the city is the only one in the world on two different continents. Half the city is in Europe and half the city is in Asia. It's cut in the middle by the Bosphorus Strait. Today, it is still the largest unreached country in the world. There are only 5,000 Christians in the entire country. Can you imagine? There's more people that come to Timberline on one weekend than are in the entire country as Christians. It's remarkable. And yet it is the country, you hear about Pastor Brent and the team going to Israel, it is the country that has the most biblical history of any other country besides Israel. So I went and uh, went with my wife and at that time our one-year-old son. And the first year that we were there, our focus was only to learn Turkish. Now that's, uh, you know, you build up, you uh, raise all the money, you, you, you go through all the effort to go, and then you're landed at a school desk. And you can imagine the defeat and the deflation that I experienced when I first got there, and I have to learn this language. And Turkish is a language that is completely opposite of English. One word in Turkish uh, may have two uh, letters, and then you add on to the end of it a bunch of other uh, other letters to change the meaning of it. So the word gelme ejectim means I might not have come. The word yoldayim means I am on the way. Those are one word which we can uh, say in a sentence. Now, so it was very difficult to learn the Turkish language. But after the first year of being there and after receiving a team of others, uh, recent grads from college that were coming over for just a year internship, we had developed Uh, the process of reaching close to half a million college students who lived in the city. And our goal was to uh, expose them to the love and the message of Christ. 
in a world that is 99.9% uh, Muslim, highly secular, and very, very difficult to reach because to be a Turk is to be a Muslim and to do anything other, to believe anything else, is to not only turn away from your God, but to turn away from your family and your country. It was November of, after, of our first year, so we'd been there just about a year. And we had done enough work on college campuses around the city of Istanbul to where we had gathered up a small, uh, maybe 10-person student gathering where on the European side of the city, there was an old church that was the remains from back in the Ottoman Empire that still was open enough for us to host a meeting. And I remember going that night, uh, late in November, to this meeting. And we gathered in the basement of this old, very cold church. There were no heaters other than the space heaters that we could gather around us. And uh, I began to speak. And I began to speak in Turkish which was a, a totally risky and phenomenal experience for me because of this whole language learning and reaching these students. This was really the launch of a movement of students in Istanbul that would grow and grow and grow over the coming years. What started as me and my wife and one other woman on staff and then these couple of interns has grown now over the course of the last 15 years to approximately 100 people who are reaching students in Istanbul. So that night was the seed that was planted of uh, a whole movement of students. And I had the great privilege of being there for the beginning. I remember walking back, and now we lived in the Asian side. So to get across the city, this is a giant city, right? So to get across the city, you had to cross the Bosphorus Strait. And I was uh, headed home, and we had these younger college student, recent grads that were going to go hang out and go out for tea and stuff after the student meeting. And I remember uh, walking from the church up to the boat dock and then got on the boat. And there are these giant boats that still run on coal and uh, steam. And their, their leftovers from the 1960s have not been updated. And I remember getting on the boat just being so full of the goodness of God. And so full of his favor. And so full of the realization of what we were watching. The inception of something beautiful that we had the opportunity to watch. And I remember getting on that boat. And I had kind of, you could go inside or you could go outside. And it was November, so it was a little bit chilly. But I chose to go outside to the front of the boat. And had my own kind of Titanic experience there. On the front of this boat as we crossed across the Bosphorus Strait. And I remember looking at the stars and just reveling in the blessing and the favor of God. We uh, got off the boat and uh, started to walk towards home. And we lived in this neighborhood. I mentioned this is the largest unreached country in the world. And we lived in the largest neighborhood in the largest city in the largest unreached country in the world. There are 2.5 million people who crossed through my neighborhood in Turkey in one day just to get to work and back. So it was very, very crowded, very, very crowded. So got off the boat, started to walk home. It was about a two-mile walk from the boat dock to our home. And I remember walking up the street, thousands of people around, and I had my cell phone out, and I was going to text. I texted my wife, and I said, things went great. 
God's favor is on us. I'll be there in five minutes. And I had my computer bag and my phone out. And I walked up the street uh, past uh, several, uh, several stores, several people. And I remember walking past this one doorway. Everything is an apartment. There's no houses there. They're all apartment buildings and, and stuff. And I, I walked past this one uh, doorway. And on the stoop of this doorway, which was not unusual, there were two guys that were sitting there just smoking and, and kind of watching the crowds go by. And I remember walking past them. And then I remember this sinking feeling hit my soul. And I kept walking. I put my cell phone in my pocket and kept walking up the street along with the, the current of people that were headed up the street. And I remember hearing faintly from behind me a man call to me and say, uh, hey, what time is it? And I didn't pay any attention to it because I thought he was talking to someone else. And then he repeated it more closely to me and more directly to me. And he said, hey, what time is it? And I said, I turned around, I looked at him, and in my all so amazingly fluent Turkish, said right back to him, it is 9.34. It was 9.34 p.m. at night. He comes up to me on my left and grabs my elbow. And he says, come here. And the other guy flanks me on the right. And he says, come here. Now, I'm 6'3". Turks are not tall people. So I'm about a head taller than most of them. And I yanked my arm away from him. And I said, what do you want? And I stopped right in front of this very well-lit bakery. It was 9.30. Like, what is a bakery doing open? I don't know. But it was this bakery. And I stood there in the doorway turned to them and said, what do you want? And he looked me in the eye and I could smell the beer on his breath. He said nothing, but lunged at me with his fist, which landed in my thigh, and then turned and ran away around the corner. I had no idea what happened, right? I'm kind of shocked, like these guys, these two guys flanked me and attacked me. And the baker, there was only one guy in the store, was standing behind me, and within a few seconds, he heard the scuttle outside, and he came to, uh, to me, and he said, hey, are you okay? And I turned, and I was like, you know, a little shaken. I was like, yeah, I think so, and uh, turned around to kind of come into the bakery and realized that there was uh, a little cut in my pants right about here. And I looked down and, and thought, gosh, where did, the, did he have a ring on or what happened? And then all of a sudden, a torrent of blood started to come out of my leg. I ran behind the bakery counter where all the cakes were being displayed and uh, unabashedly pulled my pants down to look and see what was going on. And I noticed about uh, an inch, inch and a half, half gash in my leg. The baker's face went white and he said, I'll get you a taxi. And he put me into a taxi, which fortunately about a half a mile away was a hospital because uh, I knew something was dangerously wrong. It wasn't just a punch. It wasn't just a ring. There was something else. Now, there was a Turkish word that I had not yet had the fortune of learning, which I learned when I walked into the emergency room that night. It was uh, the word that was spoken to me when the orderly laid me down on the gurney there uh, and uh, began to inspect what happened. He said the word bejaklandun, which means you have been stabbed. And in that moment, 
everything began to swirl around me because we were undercover. This is not an open missionary kind of country. We were undercover. I didn't know, was this an attack against me? Had the guy followed me from the meeting? Is this guy now, having taken me out, headed to my home to get my wife and my one-year-old son? Is this guy waiting in the neighborhood for the rest of my team who also lived in our neighborhood who were coming on the next boat or two after that I arrived? I had no idea. So quickly, before my pants were completely taken from me, I took my cell phone and I began making phone calls. I called the the, uh, leader of the team and I said, go a different way. Don't come through this neighborhood on your way back. Go a different way. Go around. Then I called my wife and I said, hi, honey. I'm not going to be home in five minutes. I'm at the hospital, but I'm okay. I've been stabbed. She was six months pregnant at the time with our second. And if you can imagine the wave of agony and fear that she felt when she heard those words. I said, I have to go now. I'm at Shifa Hospital. Get Scott to come watch Aiden, our son, and come. Within a few minutes, my gurney was surrounded not only by orderlies and nurses, but by doctors and surgeons because they weren't able to stop the blood. It was also surrounded by deputies and policemen because all of a sudden, this was not just an accident, this was a crime. And not only a crime, but a crime committed against a foreign American that if this got out to the news, then it would be a political issue. I knew also that it was a crime that exposed me as an undercover person working in the country to bring the gospel of Jesus. And there was nothing that I could do from that gurney but make a phone call or two and then hand my phone over to the orderly to be put into a plastic bag while I was wheeled emergency into the operating room. Because what had happened was that guy didn't just stab, uh, stab me. He had a 10-centimeter-long blade that went directly in and out of my thigh. 10 centimeters in and 10 centimeters back out, and it missed my femoral artery just by about 2 millimeters. It hit the other one and completely severed the vessel, and I was bleeding out there on the table. Fortunately, there was a surgeon there who was on call, and he happened to study in New Jersey. He comes up to me because my Turkish at that moment was gone. He comes up to me, and he speaks to me in English, and he says, we have to take you to surgery right now. And I said, do not put me to sleep. I have to stay awake. I have to know that my family and my teammates are okay. So on one side of the Bosphorus, I had the favor and the blessing of God. And within minutes upon crossing the Bosphorus, I am accosted and confronted with my own mortality. And I also didn't know at that point if anyone else that I loved was going to be in danger. I thought, what happened? How did it go from the blessing and favor of God to the cursing and turning away of his face. One of the misconceptions, the 10 lies that we talk about, are talking about in this series, is this misunderstanding of what blessing is. Is the blessing of God only when I am on top of the missionary game? When I am able to speak the language fluently enough to communicate the gospel to students? 
when I have this seedling of a movement is starting in a 17 million person city. Is that when I have the blessing of God? And is the cursing of God when I face the suffering, when I face the difficulty, when I face the fear and the reality of my own mortality? I think we need to really think about our understanding of blessing. And that's what I want to unpack a little bit tonight because my experience there was so stark. It was literally minutes between the blessing and what felt like the cursing of God. We need to reorient ourselves to an understanding of what blessing actually is. What is the blessing of God? Blessing is mentioned 400 times in the Bible. 400 times. It must be pretty important to God and to us to understand what the blessing of God is. So the reality is, however, that we as a culture hold blessing and the word to bless with such an anemic understanding of what it actually is. Blessing has been stripped of its true meaning. We'll say blessing uh, when you sneeze, bless you. We'll say a blessing over the meal, even if it's McDonald's. We will say, what a blessing when I get a parking spot close to Safeway right? We will uh, say, bless the Lord. Now that gets closer to the actual meaning. Or bless your heart to mean good for you. Blessing actually has been robbed of the deep meaning of what God has given it to us for. You know, there's this thing called the prosperity gospel. Have you guys ever heard of this? Okay. Prosperity gospel is basically saying, If I can name it, then I can claim it. If I can believe it hard enough, or if I can give enough money to that ministry, then I will receive the blessing of God. Right? The prosperity gospel is 100% wrong. 100% wrong. We cannot receive the blessing of God by doing anything for him. Okay? Thanks for that amen. I'll take that amen. Um, It is a total misuse of scriptures. Like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? We have overcome the world, and so therefore, if I believe hard enough, I will overcome this place of suffering. Another one, seek and knock, and the door will open. If I just believe hard enough, if I pray hard enough, if I name it and claim it, that that door will open, it will, and I will receive the blessing of God. Blessing has nothing to do with the provision or the protection of God. Let me say that again. Blessing of God has nothing to do with the provision of God or the protection of God. Now, does that mean that I don't want the provision of God? Does that mean that I don't want the protection of God? Does that mean that I don't pray for those things? Absolutely not. But it is not an indicator of his blessing when I am protected or when I am provided for. Does that make sense? What about my friend who five months ago lost his job? Did all of a sudden the blessing of God leave him? What about the clients that I work with day in and day out who have suffered sexual abuse, divorce, 
the loss of a parent or a child, have they lost the blessing of God? What about uh, the friends and neighbors who are struggling with addiction? What about the people that I know who don't have enough money to pay for food? Does that mean that they don't have the blessing of God? I think this idea of blessing, we really need to reorient ourselves to truly what it is and what it means. God is not a vending machine. He is not a genie in the sky that when I make my wish or I throw my quarters, all of a sudden the blessing and the provision and protection of God is going to come. Actually, in Matthew, Jesus teaches quite the different scenario. We've got a couple of verses up here from Matthew. It says, Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Does that sound like the provision and protection of God? It doesn't sound anything like that. Blessed are those who insult you and persecute you, right? Blessed are you when that happens. Not blessed when you get the Mercedes. Not blessed are you when you get the raise. Not blessed are you when the diagnosis comes back clean. That is not when you are blessed. It is blessed when these things that Jesus is talking about happens. This does not sound like a life of blessing that we think about. It sounds very different. Blessing, therefore is not about the things or conditions or provisions of God in this world. Blessing is about a heart posture. A heart posture of us toward the Lord and the Lord toward us. I want to unpack that a little bit more. The heart posture of us toward the Lord and the Lord towards us. To be blessed is when we have the kind face of God, despite our current circumstances. When we have the kind face of God turned towards us, when I am titanic in the front of the boat, and when I am laying on the gurney in the hospital, blessing doesn't depend on my protection. Blessing depends on his face being turned towards me and towards you. I mentioned blessing is uh, spoken of close to 400 times in the scriptures. So tonight I'll not be able to even come close to unpacking all of what it means. It's almost looking like a 400-sided diamond and the beauty of all of what God means for it. But I want to just touch on a few things. One being what I've already said with this idea of provision and protection not being the blessing of God, but primarily the face of God. And the second 
is a verse here from Numbers chapter 6. It says this, The Lord bless you and keep you. Next. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Do you realize that in Numbers, in some of the most important teaching about the blessing of God, that the primary thing that he talks about is the face. May the face of God be turned towards you. May he keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. This is the heart posture of God. Another way to put it, and I don't know if this is a word, but I'm going to make it a word. I use this word a lot, so you might have heard me use it before. This turning of his face is an identification of his withness with us. His withness. That when he is, his face is turned towards us, it is an indicator that he is with us. If you think about the brokenness of what happened in the Garden of Eden, that sin moment was most importantly a disconnection from the relationship with God as he designed it to be. It was a disconnection from God and it was a disconnection from others. In that moment of sin, withness with God and with others as he designed it to be was broken. And from that moment until the end of time, it is our passion and pursuit to be with God once again. To be with people once again. Now, I know none of you have marital struggles. And I know none of you have struggles with your children or with your parents. Okay? So you don't know what I'm talking about here when I'm talking about this with this disconnection from other people. But the deep desire of every person that I know is to be reunited and reconnected with God and with others and with themselves. And this witness is so vital when we think about God's face turning towards us. Because at every moment of human history, God is constantly pursuing the renewal and restoration of witness with us. To the degree that the very incarnation of Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus did not come to teach us more about him. He did not come to correct us. He came to reunite us, to restore the relationship of witness with him. That is what I would call a blessing. That is what I would call this turning of the face towards us. To know his presence, to seek his presence to be with him again, it involves God's covering over us. Blessing has nothing to do with provision and protection. It has to do with his covering over us and his pursuit of our hearts to reunite us and to be with us once again. Psalm 27 became a very, very important psalm to me one summer, I was walking through significant anxiety. I had a loss of many people, had left my team. 
Uh, we were facing some financial struggles in ministry. There was just a deep sense of anxiety and lostness. And I felt, as the leader of all of this, that it was my fault. And it was in this summer, this season, that I learned the depth of the understanding that I have come to of, uh, of blessing. Because I came to believe that at one point when things were going well in ministry, I had the blessing of God. And for whatever reason, he had abandoned me and left me with the shambles of ministry that was falling apart around me. Psalm 27 became very important because it was the psalm that carried me through the 2 a.m., the 3 a.m., the 4 a.m., the 5 a.m., the 6 a.m., hours of the night that no human being should ever have to see, right? Psalm 27 is uh, structured in several different sections, and I'm going to share a couple of those sections with you. The first section talks about the Lord's goodness and safety and refuge. And as I said, it is not that we should not pursue provision and protection. It's not an indicator of his blessing, however. So Psalm 27, if you can put the first couple verses up here, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Great way to start a psalm. Great kind of psalm to enter into when you're struggling with anxiety and depression, when something has happened, when you've gotten that diagnosis, so you're lying on a gurney in the hospital. The Lord is my stronghold. Great place to start. The psalmist, however, goes to section two here and enters into this. He says, When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Okay? I want to pause there for a second. So he says, the Lord is my stronghold. He is my refuge. And then he starts to say, there's armies coming after me. There are enemies coming after me. Right? There's all these things that are happening to, uh, to speak against me, to slander against me. In one place it even says that they're going to eat me. Right? They're going to devour me. So the psalmist starts with this great place of saying, hey, God is my stronghold, but then moves very quickly into, here's all the problems that I'm facing. Here's all the crap that is happening in front of me right now. You would think that the movement of the psalm would go from this great praise of God to here are the struggles I'm having, and then, Lord, please save me. Lord, please protect me. Lord, please provide for me. Please take out my enemies and wipe them off the face of the earth. You would think that's where the psalm would go. It doesn't, however. It goes here. One thing I ask from the Lord, this is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You would think he would ask for protection. Instead, the one thing that he seeks is the face of God. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That is the one thing that I seek. The psalmist knows it is not provision and protection. The blessing of God, the favor of God, is the shining of his face upon me despite my circumstances, despite the things I'm walking through. What is the point of life? What is the point of life? Easy little question. 
What is the point of life? Is it to get the Cadillac and the good job? Is it to have health until you're well into your hundreds? Is that the point of life? I discovered at that 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. that it was not for him to restore what was lost in the ministry and the things that I was struggling with. It was the point of this life is to seek his face. And if I can focus in on seeking his face, then I will be a blessed man. You know, suffering is what primarily bonds people together. You realize that? You realize it is not celebration. It is suffering. Did you know that combat veterans, missionaries from the Middle East, marriages that walk through struggles and awful diagnoses and losses, when you walk through suffering, you are more deeply bonded to the other person than when you have something great to celebrate. Isn't that kind of weird? Isn't that kind of weird? How would it not then also be that it is in the place of suffering that we have the greatest opportunity to seek the face of God and therefore the blessing of God? Okay? Blessing is having the kind face of God. It is the witness and his covering. The Hebrew word for blessing means to kneel. It means to kneel, to get down on your knees. And when we understand that the blessing of God is his kneeling to us, think about your children. Think about little kids. They're about this high. In order for me to give my face to my daughter, I have to come down to her level. I have to kneel before in order to offer that one-on-one closeness of my blessing to her. And that is what God is wanting us to understand. It is to offer his face. Think about how that can give us hope for today. Think about how that can reshape and reform our understanding of whatever we are facing. Think about a couple men in Scripture. Stephen who was an elder in the early church, one of the leaders of the church in the Acts of the Apostles. It talks about how in the moment that he was being stoned, his face lit up and shone. He saw the face of God and he welcomed it. Can you imagine being stoned and seeing the face of God and welcoming it? Can you imagine Paul in prison when he has lost everything that he has. He's now stuck in a prison and he is doing what? Singing. He's singing. It's not in the provision and the protection. It is in the face of God in the prison. Think about Jesus himself. Think about how his face wept and was delighted in what he was offering to us. Think about Job. This was a hard one for me. Think about Job, who at the beginning of the the book of Job, it talks about the massive, massive losses that he faced. He lost all of his wealth, all of his children, all of his 
home, everything literally collapsed around him. And you know what he did? He knelt down and worshiped. And at that 3 a.m. time frame in that summer when I was walking through those hardships, that was the verse that caught me. Man, if he can lose all of that, if he can suffer so much and fall down and worship, so can I. So can I. Because it is not in the renewal of those things that he fell down to worship. It was not, Lord, please restore to me my children. Restore to me my wealth. It was, turn your face to me, O Lord. So we need to shift our posture. We need to understand that blessing doesn't have to do with those other things. That blessing has to do with the kneeling of God. And can we, when we are seeking the blessing of God, come alongside of the psalmist and say, despite what I am facing, whether it is a wonderful job or an awful job, a wonderful diagnosis or an awful diagnosis, a wonderful moment in my life where I am on the bow of this ship or I am on the gurney in the hospital, one thing I ask, this is what I seek. One thing I ask, this is what I seek that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. Can we do that? Can we seek his blessing in those ways? It took me months of recovery from the stabbing. It literally, uh, they had to go down into my thigh 10 centimeters down. They had to open it up 10 centimeters wide in order to repair the vessels then they had to repair the muscles. Then they had to repair the skin. And I, had, I, I still have a, a, a massive scar across my thigh. The deepest piece of me that was wounded that night was not my leg. It was my pride. It was the fact that I had been on the top of my game and now I was at the bottom of my game. I could not move for four months. I had to lay in the, in the living room of my house there with my legs straight out, I couldn't walk. I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself. I couldn't do anything for four months. It was a long recovery, but what took even longer was the recovery of my heart. Because it was in that moment that my heart was stabbed. It was in that moment that I had to uh, struggle with the reality that the blessing of God is not in the highest peak of the mountain. The blessing of God actually shows up in the lowest valley. And it wasn't until I recovered in that place that I began to have a depth of sweetness with Jesus that was not available to me on that boat, but became available, available to me in that bed. And I come out of that experience having a deeper understanding of the blessing of God. Is it there all the time? No. Do I want his protection? Absolutely do I want his provision? Absolutely. But the blessing of God is not in those things. The blessing of God is in his face. I have the great opportunity to lead a community here in Fort Collins called Restoration. It's the best job in the world because I get to work alongside of both other counselors and therapists and spiritual directors as well as clients 
people who are longing to know the face of God. It is the most beautiful process for me to be able to walk alongside of people who say it is not in the provision, it is in the presence. One of those colleagues of mine is here tonight, and I want to introduce Lindy to you. She is going to share a little bit more about her story of uh, this process for her, this breakdown. Come on up, Lindy. This breakdown of uh, her experience of God's presence in his face. Lindy, how, how have you come to know this as well? Yeah, I feel like I should just get out of the way and let you keep preaching. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's hitting home, and I think ultimately, ultimately, ultimately my story is a testament of um, what you just preached. Um, as I was reflecting, and you asked me to speak of how I'm blessing, it's something that has just been this core hinge of struggle and wrestling and trying to understand this Christian narrative. Um, but I think what I was getting stuck with is I, I ascribed to this prosperity um, gospel that if I had the favor of God, that all would be well. And let me tell you, it was um, pretty well. I didn't grow up in the church, um, but when I came to a church, I received this good news, and it felt good for a time. Um, my husband and I um, left Colorado about eight years ago. Um, in that time, we had just newly married, brand new married. Um, we got a puppy. Um, we spent our early years of marriage frolicking in the mountains under the sunshine that you all have here. Um, and it felt like I had the favor of God, and I think I was, it was easy to ascribe to that. Um, what I didn't understand is that that is not the gospel. That would be the gospel if it was just for me, but it didn't encompass or leave space um, for my husband and I to meet in more intimate places, for me to see the face of others. Um, so, as God does, um, he sent me on a little journey. And so my husband and I um, moved from Colorado to Seattle, Washington about eight years ago. And we arrived there... Um, I believed that I had the favor of God, and I had the strength and the wisdom, and I was going to go there. I was planning to do a two-year master's degree in counseling. Um, I was certain that we would be back within three years. Um, it was all mapped out and planned out. And up until that point in my life, I was able to make a map and follow it. I'm pretty stubborn and headstrong in that sense. Um, so off we went to Seattle. We knew nobody there. Um, we arrived, and really early on there, I remember we lived amidst um, a lot of homelessness. If you visit the city of Seattle, um, especially right now in the current um, conditions of the city, homelessness is rampant. Um, where we lived, it was just a part of our daily rhythm and scheme. Um, I last, I came from working at Seattle Pacific University. We just hosted Tent City 3. Um, the New York Times just did an article about it. But um, we, the city is so inundated with homelessness um, that there are cities of tents that come and live in church parking lots. Um, and that is um, good conditions to live in for many in the city of Seattle. So all of a sudden, I had to start grappling with this gospel for me versus the gospel for my neighbor. Um, and I, my eyes started to be unveiled. At the same time, I found a graduate school, um, the Seattle School, which um, Chris is also alumni of. 
And this school started to ask me to look at my own narrative, um, to go back. And I kept asking, why would I go back in the past when I want to move to the future? Um, that was just the, very much the message of prosperity, of don't look back, just keep going ahead, um, move forward. So again, um, through the urging of God, I had to sit and grapple with some of the things that happened, some of the traumas and um, narratives of my past, and it started to unwind me as I begin to open my eyes um, to the places of suffering in my own life, and then that begin to open my eyes further and further and further to the suffering to my left, to my right, to my front, to my back. Um, my end of my uh, first year of graduate school, I was pretty tired and worn and weary and really just grappling with, God, where are you in the midst of so much suffering? It just felt um, like it was everywhere. And I got out of class, looked at my phone, seven missed phone calls. Um, my husband. I knew immediately this was not good news. Uh, he had just he had had a pain in his side. Um, was at the ER the night before. They thought it was appendicitis. They sent him home. It's not, but we do see that your lymph nodes are swollen. Um, so I call him back, and he says, you need to get home. Um, sorry, as I step into these places, it's vivid in the sights and sounds. And a friend drove me home, and there was my husband. Um, we were just a year married. Um, telling me I've been diagnosed with testicular cancer. Um, from there on, we, our whole life shifted. Everything stopped. Um, testicular cancer is a treatable form of cancer. Um, the doctor that treats testicular cancer is based out of Seattle, Washington. He treated Lance Armstrong, and that was to be Dean's doctor, my husband. Um, he looked at us and he said, I have never seen numbers of your markers before. Um, I'm hopeful and I do not know. So the, the um, disease had spread into his lymph nodes and through his chest. And so they went kind of to the most aggressive form of treatment, um, which meant that we would pack our bags, move into the hospital. It was 24-7 chemo treatment. Um, and we would live in the hospital for a little bit, and then we would transition back out of the hospital and try and adjust back to life for um, three or four weeks and then back to the hospital. Um, so that was our rhythm and our, our space and place and um, just our reality. It was at this point I started to kind of cry out, <laughs> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've believed in this, this good news, this hope. Um, where is it? And in those spaces and places, um, a lot of people reached out to us. Some um, with every Bible verse that you <laughs> um, quoted around the prosperity gospel, but it left me feeling like you're not seeing me. Um, I know there is goodness to come. Praise, yes, yes, yes. I trust in um, this redemption that is to come. And yet we live in the midst of this season of remembering shalom, remembering peace and restoration, and knowing that it will be coming. But we live in this space where it's both and. Um, so I remember the face of so many people in this season, the witness, 
Um, I will never forget one of our friends as we just cried on the elevator up to start the first round of chemo, and he just sat there silently, his face with us. And I remember as my faith was shaken, so many people who came and tears would stream down their face. Lack of words. Um, they couldn't fix it in this moment. Um, prayers, yes. Longing for restoration, yes. Um, but the moments that I could hold my faith was the moments when somebody could be with me in those moments. Um, fast forward a little bit. Um, the journey continued to get harder, and I felt um, like I was looking to Job in many of these seasons. My husband, after his last round of chemo, he was to have this surgery um, where they would hopefully take out the remaining tumors, and perhaps we would move on with our lives. We um, turned off our cell phones. We went away. It was our three-year anniversary by this point. We went to the Oregon coast um, to get away for a weekend. No doctors, um, no visits. My husband was completely bald, bloated at this point from the steroids and the um, chemicals. And, and we basically just laid in the sand and rested <laughs> for this time. But we got back in the car and turned our cell phones on driving home. And another message came, and this time it was my doctor. And it was her saying, I need you to come in. We found some abnormalities in your routine checkup, um, which sent us into another journey of during my husband, after his last chemo treatment, I was diagnosed with an extremely rare form of cervical cancer. Um, we went into his surgery. It was to be a five-hour surgery, pretty big deal. Um, and then 12 and a half hours later, the doctor came out. Um, they told us, knowing your husband, he'll be eating a hamburger within a week and out of the hospital just after that. Um, we were there for seven weeks, and they had to completely take out all of his organs, scrape one by one um, where the tumors had melted into his body, um, and sew him back up. Over that course of that time, I watched them bring defibrillators to him as his organs were failing, and watching these images of, <laughs> where is God in the midst of this? And again... Um, those people showing up with their faces, sitting alongside us, holding my hand as I was in complete terror. Um, less words, more presence was always what I needed in these moments, in these scenarios. Um, I think as you've shared, um, I think there is this like part of me that wants to go back to that prosperity gospel, but I think, y'all, I would never wish our journey um, upon anybody, and we there's more more to be said about that. Um, we had a further um, and another small cancer had surgery, a lump lumpectomy on my breast, and it just felt like it does not end for us. Um, and as I look back over that season, I wouldn't change it. Um, I wouldn't wish for it ever, ever, ever again. <laughs> um, but the parts I wouldn't change is, like you said, um, I was not connecting to God or to people in my arrogance, in my prosperity, <laughs> in believing that good things come to people who obey. Um, I 
saw the face of God when I was at, on my knees. Um, when I received the witness of another willing to come alongside me, and so many people <laughs> um, came alongside me. Um, Chris knows I've been longing for my community. Um, we just moved here three weeks ago and just grieving the absence because so many people came alongside and were with us. And that, my friends, was good news. Um, I wish I had like a, a bow to wrap this up in. I think health for us is a journey and there is no knowing. But what I do know is um, for our time here, um, I have become a much better person at being with others um, and their suffering. And, um, and yes, this longing, this hunger for restoration and full for all to be well. Um, but as others have offered to me that witness, I become a better Christian of this narrative. That is good news amidst the suffering. Yeah. So. Thank you, Lindy. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I love how Lindy brings us back to the place of good news. And this uh, good news is just as she experienced with her community that God invites us to participate. He invites us to participate in the blessing by bringing our faces to one another. You know, the word blessing and the word encouragement are very different. The word encourage literally has the roots of the word heart. The French word for heart is cur. It means to give heart. It means to give heart in a situation. But the word blessing means to cover. One of the amazing things that we get to do with Restoration Project, and many of you have flyers that you got at the front, is we, ex we craft experiences for fathers to kneel before their children, their boys and their girls, where they can speak life words into the hearts of their children, where they are literally kneeling before them and blessing them with their face. Can you imagine? There is not a single dry eye in the crowd, man or child alike. In the same way, Jesus himself knelt. He knelt before us and he came to be with us. As I said, that God with us in such a way that his kneeling cost him his life. And it's in that celebration of his life and his death and primarily his blessing, not the prosperity, not the provision, not the protection, but the witness of God that leads us into a place of connectedness again with him. And so tonight, we're gonna end tonight with communion. And I wanna invite you to participate with God face to face. As you take the elements, as you take the bread, on the night he was betrayed, this bread was broken. His body was broken for you. That is good news. He also took the cup and gave us a new covenant in his blood. 
and said, it is not of the old. It is not of the way that you've always known it to be. It is a new way. I kneel before you and give you my very life. So I want to invite you to come and to take and participate in the blessing. To come and say, one thing I ask, Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon your beauty. Would you come?